Well, good morning, Stonebridge. Thank you, worship team. That was just incredible. Oh, yeah. So my name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here, and I just want to just say thank you for joining us, for being with us. It's just such a blessing, as always. Everything, every single Sunday, I just am so encouraged to stand up here and look out and just see all of you. And so just thank you for that. Um, we're going to be continuing in our series in Judges. We'll find ourselves in Judges 13 through 16 today. So if you want to head on over there um, while I keep talking, um, about 40 years ago, psychologists came up with something called the word association game. They did it to try and identify subconscious thought patterns. They would say things like heart, and if you would say passion, or, or you might say broken, it would reveal something about your subconscious thoughts. If everything that you say, when, when they say a word, if everything comes out negative or hurtful, it might reveal something going on in your subconscious thoughts. Um, so we're going to play a little game today. We're going to play the word association game. So in full youth ministry style, I'm going to have you turn to your neighbor. And when I say a word, you're going to tell your neighbor the first word that comes to mind. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. So first up. Day. I heard a few. I heard a few. Night. Like, isn't that funny? It's like we say day and instantly we say night, you know? Some people may say, like, work, right? Because you work during the day or depending on what your schedule is, you may say sleep because you try and sleep. I say try because anyone who works third shift knows you're not sleeping during the day. All right, one more. Oh, no, I got a few more. So next one. We'll go with kind of off of that. Work. Ew. I heard, I heard ew in that. Love that. <laughs> yeah, some people love their jobs. Some people hate their jobs. Maybe you just instantly say the place where you work at or maybe the name of a coworker because that's, they're the only bright spot in your day at work. At least you have a good coworker next to your side. All right, how about this one? Sports. Yeah. Unfortunately, Matt says Chiefs. I think I'm his neighbor. Did they win? Did they? Yeah. It's preseason. It doesn't matter anyway. They'll blow it. <laughs> so yeah, you'll maybe name a certain sport, you know, basketball, football, baseball, golf. Nobody says golf. So, all right, last one. What do you think of when I say the word Samson? Long hair, strong man. Maybe you think of Delilah, that incredible love story that we find in these passages, Samson and Delilah. And now that song is stuck in your head, right? Hey there, Delilah. So today we're going to be looking at the character of Samson. He's the judge in these next four chapters of Judges. And many of you have probably heard Sunday school lessons as a child where you heard about Samson and, and heard about all of the incredible things he did. And so since we're, since we're covering four chapters, I'm going to read some of it. I'm going to paraphrase some of it. I'm going to completely skip other parts. So I encourage you, as always, to go back and read through it because there's some incredible stuff in these stories and these passages. Um, God did use Samson in an incredible way. But the reality is that Samson was far from a hero. 
We saw last week in Judges 9 through 12 that God can use broken, messed up people. But that doesn't mean that there are some great pillars of the faith. Like, oh yeah, Samson, I'm going to model my life after Samson. He's a great guy. No. Through the stories of Samson, we can see a life of compromise. And that's our main idea today. That when we compromise our morals, we cripple our witness for Christ. That's what Samson did. He compromised his morals and he crippled his witness for God. So let's dive into our passages for today. You can follow along. I'll start right in chapter 13, um, the first verse. And we're going to look at Samson's great start. So follow along as I read. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have not borne children, like she didn't know. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful. Drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us, teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born. So right off from the bat, we see this great start before he's even born, this great start that Samson had. He has a, a prophesied verse in ver, or prophesied, prophesied birth in verse 3. Now, there are many men in the Bible who have had prophesied births from the Old Testament to the New Testament, many men, and, and all of them God used in incredible ways. And God will use Samson as well. But I have to wonder if while these parents are hearing their son is coming and, and this prophesied birth, that they couldn't think back to Abraham and Isaac and these births that were prophesied and the incredible great things that these men did for God. And they started to get that hope like, yeah, God's going to use our son in incredible ways and he's going to deliver our country. Samson was also a Nazarite. Now that isn't just someone who lived in Nazareth. In the Old Testament, it's actually a special vow that the Israelites would take. You can find the Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. We will not go there for time's sake, but basically the purpose of the Nazarite vow was to raise up a group of leaders completely devoted to God. 
And as we can see in these passages, there are three distinct restrictions of the vow to be a Nazarite. He must abstain from wine and fermented drink, including even touching grapes or even eating foods that had traces of grapes in them. Their hair could not be cut and the beard could not be shaved. And touching a dead body was absolutely prohibited. Human or animal, no dead bodies could be touched by the Nazarites. Now, the amount of time that these restrictions were followed varied. It depended on the people. And as the next semester comes in and, and into next year, as we look at Acts, we'll see that Paul took Nazarite vow at one point for 30 days. And then there's offerings at the end of this vow. And it's just a, a moment and a time that he can dedicate his life to God. Samson's vow was a little bit different. His was for life. Parents were allowed to take this vow for their young children, to say this child is dedicated to God. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist all were people who took this vow for all of their life. It's a symbol of how God, God's Savior, Jesus, would be set apart, holy and sinless. Now, these men weren't holy and sinless, especially Samson, as we're going to see, but they were set apart. They were meant to be looked to, to something to guide and lead people. Samson had incredibly godly parents. You can see that in verse 8. They praised God when they heard about the birth of their child, and then they even pray for the angel to come back and guide them. Tell us how we're supposed to raise this child. Tell us what we're to do with this child. We want him to be devoted to you, God. In chapter 14 and 15, we can see the Spirit of the Lord comes in and out of Samson's life. We'll read at least one of those verses later, but Chapter 14, verse 6, chapter 14, verse 19, chapter 15, or chapter, yeah, chapter 15, verse 14, all are references to the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson to do incredible things. This may not seem as important to us living in New Testament time and New Covenant. If we are followers of Jesus, we have the Spirit living in us at all times. But that wasn't true for the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord came in and out to enable people to do incredible things. So Samson was blessed with this Spirit off and on through his life. And as we said at the beginning, he had great strength. Everyone, everyone knows of Samson, the strong man. But the interesting thing to note when you read through these passages, it never talks about his size. Everyone just always assumes he's this huge man, this giant bodybuilder. I always get this picture of like muscles on top of muscles. Like I imagine that guy in the gym that has like no neck because he has the muscles piled on top of muscles and he can barely turn his head or can't raise his arms all the way, right? Like that's, that's Samson, right? The Bible never says that. And actually, it repeatedly talks about the Philistines trying to figure out where his strength even come from. When I go to the gym and I see those guys in the gym with those muscles and they're lifting dead weights and slamming weights down and screaming, I don't wonder where their strength is coming from. I know exactly and I know to stay away from them. The Philistines looked at Samson and said, where does his strength come from? So it's possible he was actually even a little guy. 
His mighty strength came from God. So Samson was a Nazarite. He was devoted to God, and that was the secret to his success. He was raised up for a specific purpose, but unfortunately, he didn't quite succeed in performing his God-appointed task. Verse 5 of chapter 13 says it best. He began to deliver Israel. He began, but he never quite finished. Many Christians are like this as well. We, we have great starts. You know, we, we give our lives to Christ and we devote ourselves and I'm going to read the Bible all the way through this year and I'm going to pray every single day and, and we have these great starts, but slowly we start to slip. Many people start well, but after years of this world beating them down, they start to slip and their beliefs start to compromise. Samson seemed to have everything lined up for him to be an incredible spiritual leader for Israel. But as we head into chapter 14, we can see that Samson has some issues. He has, he has some weaknesses. Remember, though, when we, when we compromise our morals, we cripple our witness. Follow along again as I read chapter 14, again starting right in verse 1, and we'll start to see some of Samson's issues. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his mother or his father what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. So right away, we see the beginning of compromise seeping into Samson's life. He is driven by passion towards women. This is the root of most sin. The pride of the eyes and the lust of the flesh over and over again. In, in Judges, we've seen this reoccurring theme of it was right in their own eyes. It's right in his eyes. She was right in his eyes. He didn't care about the spiritual temperature of this woman. She was good-looking, and he wanted her. That's it. We can also see in these verses that it, this is incredibly dishonoring to his family, to his parents. 
way back in Deuteronomy, the Israelites are commanded, as you go into the promised land, do not marry the women that are in there. Do not take the women as your wives. Samson doesn't care. His parents, they're, they're pleading with him. They're saying, can't you find a good Israelite girl? They knew that Samson had big plans, or that God had big plans for Samson. But they knew that messing around with a Philistine girl was going to take his focus off of God. His mother and father were shattered. They had lived in the hope of his birth for years, and now this. As I was thinking about this story of Samson dishonoring his parents, I thought of my own boys and a conversation that Deacon and I had had once. See, Deacon has a strong desire to be an engineer someday. He loves building and creating things. And just a little side note, in case you haven't figured it out yet, coming to Stonebridge, Andrea and I are Hawkeyes. We're Hawkeyes for life. That's just who we are. Andrea graduated from Iowa, and I just, I just like him. But it's got to support my wife. Um, but Deacon and I were talking about this, and he's like, Dad, where's one of the best schools for engineering around here? <sighs> well, buddy, I hate to say this to you, but one of the best schools for engineering around here, I've got to be honest, it's ISU. He's like, no, not the dirty birds. I sit here and I think about this passage and I think about my boys and I say, what if they want to grow up and marry a cyclone? God, no. No, that wouldn't be that horrible. Salt companies over there. There are some good cyclones, I hope. The interesting verse in this passage is actually found in verse four. It says that this woman, this relationship was from God. Now, I pray that my boys will marry a good Christian woman, whether she is a cyclone, a Hawkeye, or even a Cornhusker, maybe. No, but seriously, any, I just pray that they all marry a godly Christian woman. And I will teach them, my wife and I will teach them the values of not dating someone who does not share their convictions and their Christian morals. And I know some of you parents have the same hopes And some of you have been walking through this right now with your teens. Or maybe some of you have already walked through it with your teens. Now we could use this passage and say that maybe it's okay. Right? If we just took this passage out of context and say, hey, this Philistine girl, she was from the Lord. Maybe it's okay if my boys marry a non-Christian woman. But I I I don't believe that. Because of the rest of Samson's life from this point, we can see that his willingness to compromise his morals and to be led by passion for women, that the rest of his life is a train wreck. God may have allowed this situation, but it does not mean that he approved of it. That does not mean that his parents were wrong in objecting to Samson's desires just because God was involved and leading in the process. It just means that because of, in spite of Samson's bullheadedness, God can work. It means that neither Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness was going to prevent God from accomplishing his will. 
God can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his people as the camouflage to bring about his secret will. Verses 5 through 18 point us to more compromise in Samson's character. He starts to keep secrets with his parents. Now, it doesn't exactly say it in this verse, but Samson had no business being where he was. You see, he was, he was a Nazarite, and because of his vow, Samson wasn't even supposed to touch a grape, but yet he's walking through the vineyard. I don't know how you walk through a vineyard and not brush against a grape. And the lion comes out. It was a warning from God to say, stay on the path. This is not where you're supposed to be, Samson. Stay focused on me. But instead, due to his willingness to compromise his vow and his morals, he takes pride in going off the path. This is awesome, he says. It's like he's saying, I'm fine. I don't even need God. I can go my own way. I can do my own things. I'll just tear lions in half. No big deal. Then we can see the secrets start up. He lies. It doesn't lie. He just doesn't even tell his parents what happened. Secrets are, are never a place for us as followers of Jesus to be. Our lives need to be as transparent as possible. That is the witness of Jesus. I'm a mess. I say that often. Many of you who know me know how much of a mess I can be. But thank God for Jesus and his mercy redeeming me and continually sanctifying me more into himself. That is the message. Then again in verse 8, we see Samson turn aside again. As he's going back to collect his Philistine wife, He turns aside because he wants to go check out this dead carcass. And his pride and his willingness to compromise takes him off that path that God had set before him. He has already broken one of his vows. And now we see him breaking another one by touching the carcass to scrape the honey out of the inside of it. And then the fact that he takes that honey to his parents is just appalling to me. It's It's like he's dragging them into his sinfulness. Not only is he sneaking around and and breaking the vows to God that his parents have promised to God, now he's giving them some. It's like the alcoholic trying to get his family to drink with him, right? Like, I'm not that bad if all of you are doing it with me. Isn't that the case when we find ourselves compromising our morals? We desire to surround ourselves, to bring others into our mess. It is a way of making ourselves feel better about the choices that we're making. I'm not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. Through the rest of this chapter, we see Samson going to collect his wife and the marriage ceremony, and he's meeting up with these Philistine Philistine men, and, and he starts bragging about the lion, and he's gambling with the Philistines about this. He comes up with this riddle and gambles with them about this riddle. And then he loses the bet. And Samson kind of freaks out a bit. And he goes to another town, and he kills 30 men just to cover his gambling debt. In verse 19, you see that. Through all the compromises, though, God still uses him. God uses messed up people to accomplish his purpose. 
but he doesn't spare them from the consequences of their compromise. And we're going to see what some of those com- consequences are in a little bit. Um, as we, but as we move into chapter 15, we're going to first see how God uses this messed up compromising fool to bring about his plan. As I said in verse 4, God was looking for an opportunity against the Philistines. And as chapter 15 starts up, we see Samson heading back to collect his wife, his trophy. After the the wager and after he wandered off and left his wife on their wedding night because he's upset that he lost the wager, he goes back weeks later to collect her and he finds out that she was given to somebody else. So in true Samson style, he burns down a bunch of Philistine grain and olive orchards. How did he do that, you ask? Well, look at chapter 15, verses 4 and 5 with me. It says, So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the snacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. What? He used 300 foxes to burn down a bunch of... Couldn't he have just taken the torches and just lit fire? No, that'd be too conventional. Samson is our unconventional hero. He's going to do something crazy. I don't know a lot about hunting or trapping or really anything outdoorsy. But one of the manliest men that I know and one of our elders, Ryan Graydon... He told me that this is incredible. Apparently, it's difficult to catch even one fox. They're kind of quick, supposedly. Um, Let alone 300. He got 300 foxes and then ties their tails together. This is just, it's incredible. Then he runs off and the Philistines come looking for him. So then he devises this crazy plan how he's going to turn himself over. He turns himself over to the, the, his p- own people, and they go to bring him in. But then as the, the, the Philistines come to collect him, he goes all Braveheart style and kills a thousand of them in one shot. How in the world does he do that? Well, let's read again. Chapter, four, uh, chapter 15, verses 14. It says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. With the jawbone of a donkey, he just starts slaughtering thousands of Philistine men. This is, this is incredible. These are just incredible stories. We've been talking about that through all of Judges, just these wild, awesome stories. But there is a huge issue in all of these stories. All of them are being done in anger and in vengeance. And it's only puffing up Samson's pride more and more. Remember with me way back, if you were here, back when Matt talked about Deborah and Barak? And they did some pretty incredible things, too. And then Deborah had a song. Chapter 5 is a song of Deborah talking about the victory that they had. 
that song is just dripping with praise to God. She's praising God for giving them, giving her and giving Barack and giving JL all of the power and the abilities to do what they did. It is all focused on God. It is an incredible praise. Samson has a little song, too, after his victories. Um, verse 16 It says, and Samson said, praise God whom all blessings flow. Praise, nope, that's not what it says. But Samson wouldn't do that. It says, and Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. Have I struck down a thousand men. He takes all the credit. And then through the rest of this chapter, he's, thirsty after defeating all these men so then he demands god to crack open a rock and miraculously give him water he's getting more and more prideful and arrogant as he goes on and the compromise in his life will only continue he's just spiraling out of control i don't know about you guys but samson really frustrates me sometimes but i think the reasons i dislike samson so much is because i can see myself in him at times as I look back at my own life and I see the successes that I have had, even successes in ministry, there have been moments of pride and arrogance. Look at me. I grew this youth group from 12 kids to 60 kids in just four years. How incredible am I? It's really easy as humans to start to do that, to get prideful of what we're doing. But I've also seen that when I start to get prideful and arrogant, that's when the compromises in my life start to seep in. When we are our own saviors and lords, it is really easy to accept our own sinfulness. When we don't need God, why would we need a savior? As we head into chapter 16, we see continued compromise and the unfortunate ending of a life poorly lived. Verse 1 starts right off, and he rolls into town and has lost his wife, and so he visits a prostitute and shacks up for a night. And then verses 4 through 19 is the story of Delilah. And I'm not going to read through that either. Many of you have probably heard it. If not, again, read it. He loves playing this game with her. Where are the Philistines? Here come the Philistines. And, but it's just this messy relationship, weird. Like, I don't know why he's there. But it's because he's driven by this passion. He's with three different women in three different chapters. He's an absolute womanizer. All three of them are Philistines. Although he may be strong physically, he's an absolute weakling in regards to his morality. In the end, he ends up heading, getting captured from his stupidity, and his messing around with Delilah, he gets his eyes gouged out, gets drugged into the temple, and he gets put on display for the Philistines to make fun of. And eventually, in one final moment of strength, tears down the temple and kills more Philistine in one moment than he did his entire life. The story of Delilah shows Samson fully turning from God, though. He's already broken two of the restrictions of the Nazarite vow by touching grapes and touching dead animals twice. 
But now just to keep this ungodly woman happy and to continue his illicit affair with her, he tells her what will be his absolute undoing. He tells her, if my hair is shaved, I will lose my strength. It's not just about his hair. It's not just about his hair being shaved. It is the fact that his hair was a sign of his unique relationship. His unique relationship with God. When Delilah became more important to him than God, his strength and his standing with God was removed. His sin had caused him to forfeit the power of God's presence. Samson is a picture of the fact that a life of compromise will cripple our witness for Christ. Now, as I have said earlier, many times we have heard stories about how great Samson was and and how, but he truly is this fool who only cares about himself. He leaves the country of Israel exactly like it was when he started, under Philistine control. And as it said in the beginning of these chapters, he only began to save Israel from the Philistines. The Philistines would stay a thorn in Israel's side for years to come. In fact, they would honestly be, be constantly warring with the Philistines in Israel up until the Babylonian exile, hundreds of years later. God uses messed up people to accomplish his purposes, but he doesn't spare them the consequence of their compromise. And so we can look back and kind of look at the life of Samson and see what some of these consequences were. Chapter 14, verse 20, I talked about it. He lost his wife. This wife that he seemed to care so much about that he was willing to go against his parents' wishes. He was so focused on his pride and his wager that he was willing to walk away from her on their wedding night. And then she was given away. And that would eventually end in death of the wife and continued lust from Samson. He had a loss of integrity We have discussed the topic of integrity before, but just a reminder, integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It is clear to see while reading these chapters that Samson did not have any strong moral principles. The Nazarite vow that was taken by his parents should have been a guiding principle for his life. Instead, it became a joke to him and something for him to rebel against. I can only imagine what the Israelites that lived around Samson would have thought as they saw him basically spitting on his Nazarite vow. They knew he was supposed to be this man set aside and he was supposed to have taken these vows and he was supposed to have these restrictions and he didn't care. He just went against them. And lastly, he had the loss of the Spirit of the Lord. Go to chapter 16, verse 20 for me. This is possibly one of the most haunting verses in Scripture. This is at the end of his back and forth with Delilah. Verse 20 says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
he did not know the Lord had left him. What does it feel like to be alone? How do you feel when you know that you have no one you can turn to? It is one of the most frightening feelings of being alone. Children, we see it constantly. When when they think that they're alone, they're terrified. What What would it feel like to realize that God had left you? In that moment when he just jumps up thinking, I'm gonna do this again like I've done a hundred times. And all of a sudden it's not there anymore. The Lord had left him. Samson is a man that is a picture of our cultural, secular man. He's prideful, he is arrogant, he is driven by his own selfish desires, and he's willing to sacrifice anything for his own pride and for his own vengeance. The question I want to end with is what are we willing to compromise for? What is that one thing? What is that one thing that will bring you joy? That you think this one thing will just bring me fulfillment? If you don't instantly know it when I say that, ask somebody that's close to you. I guarantee they know what that one thing is in your life. Ask your children. Go to them and say, hey, what is the most important thing to me? they'll know instantly. What are you willing to compromise to get? Is it an inappropriate relationship? Just like Samson, are you pursuing a relationship based solely on appearance? This is one of the biggest areas that I've seen compromise slip into people's lives. I know many people that that think that they can be the one that can change this messed up person. I I can show them Jesus. They think that having a relationship with a non-Christian, that they, that they will be a picture of Jesus and they'll lead them to the Lord. That happens sometimes. But almost every situation that I have seen, the Christian starts to compromise their beliefs and their morals. And sometimes when the relationship falls apart, they aren't even walking with the Lord anymore. Maybe are you willing to compromise for an appropriate relationship? You're like, well, what does that mean? Is your spouse the idol of your life? Do you put your spouse above God? If I could only get more time with them, if I could only be a little bit more intimate with them, if they would only respect me a little bit more, are they what you are willing to compromise anything for? well, I'm not going to go to church today because this is the only day that I've gotten to spend time with them. I'm not going to open my Bible today because I get to have 10 minutes sitting on the couch with them. What are you willing to compromise to be with your spouse? What about our children? Are we willing to compromise for our children? If they could only get into a certain college, right? If my kids would only respect me a little bit more. If they would only be a little bit better at this sport. If I, if I just took them to three more tournaments this year and they won these tournaments, yeah, that's on Sunday. But if I just take them to these tournaments and skip church, then they'll get into that scholarship. They'll get that scholarship and get into that college. And then they'll be happy. And then I'll be happy. Are we willing to compromise our beliefs for our children? And everyone's favorite money. What are we willing to compromise for money? If I could only make a little bit more, if I could only get into this next tax bracket, if I could only get that promotion or that job I've been dreaming of, if I could only make enough to get that new car, new house, new whatever, then I'd be happy. 
In all of these situations, we find ourselves compromising our morals to achieve whatever it is that we believe will make us happy. All along the way, though, crippling our witness for Christ. Only Jesus can give the fulfillment we are looking for in all of these things. If we continue to compromise our morals, we will see the consequences of our life. God may still use us for his glory during that time of compromising, but it doesn't mean that he approves of what we're doing. Jesus is the true and better Samson. He will succeed in every place that Samson failed. Like Samson, Jesus' strength was not found in his outward appearance, but in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit inside of him. Unlike Samson, though, Jesus never compromised. He would keep every facet of God's law without sin. Instead of being controlled by his own impulses, Jesus would be controlled by God's will. Jesus didn't do things because it pleased himself. He did it because it pleased God. And though Jesus was entitled to the throne of God, he took the role of servant and submitted to the humiliation of the cross. Reading these chapters, we can stand in awe at the strength of Samson, the incredible things that he has done. But how much better if we stand amazed at the presence of Jesus. Let's make sure not to cripple our witness for Jesus by compromising our morals. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these passages. I thank you for this book of Judges and how much it has been eye-opening and revealing of my own character and my own shortcomings. Father, I praise you for the fact that you are willing to use all of us. Compromise slips in from day to day, from week to week. But God, help us to just stand strong on our morals and our beliefs, on our Christian convictions. Help us hold fast to those in the midst of the world around us. The world constantly wants to steal our attention and pull us away from you. But God, help us to run to the feet of the cross, confessing our sins of compromise every day, learning to walk more and more like you. Thank you, God. In your name I pray. Jesus, amen.